This podcast is brought to you by GuestLogix, the leading global provider of ancillary-focused merchandising, payment, and business intelligence technology to the airline industry. To learn how GuestLogix can elevate your ancillary revenue potential, visit www.guestlogix.com. There's a common storyline in the airline industry that goes like this. As an airline becomes more successful and thus bigger, it becomes a big target for younger airlines who have cheaper employees and perhaps even newer, more efficient airplanes. The bigger airline can get picked apart until they wind up in bankruptcy or at least made more vulnerable. But Southwest, for the moment anyway, is truly enjoying its fifth decade. It's 44 years old and not just doing well, it's doing as well as it's ever done. It's performing better than most other U.S. carriers. And those U.S. carriers are elite company right now. They are, at the moment, the best performers in the world. This week's cover story in Airline Weekly details all the things Southwest is doing to succeed like it is. But there are some things it's not doing. Meanwhile, something that Aeroflot is not doing could be good news for that company. And Volaris is growing like a weed. We're saving you a seat in the Airline Weekly Lounge, coming up right now. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Cottrell, and with me is the unflappable Seth Kaplan, both of us a couple of Airline Weekly lifers. Ten years. In the cover story this week, we talked about all the changes Southwest is making to compete and thrive, but we didn't focus too much on what they're not doing. They aren't charging for bags, they're not charging for itinerary changes, they're not assigning seats, and they're not selling through online travel agencies. These have all been fairly controversial issues among airline analysts. Is Southwest success evidence that they're right about these things? Well, Jason, that's the big question. You know, are, are they succeeding because of those things or are they succeeding despite them? Uh, you know, succeeding, in other words, because of the other things you mentioned, some of the changes that they have indeed made, as well as, you know, just, just some of the luck associated with you know, being an all domestic U.S. airline at a time when the domestic U.S. market is really the place to be in the world. And, you know, certainly Southwest uh, you know, sees its success as validation of, of everything it's doing. Um, on, the, on the other hand, um, uh, you know, some of those things you mentioned, it, it's a little bit difficult to understand why uh, they would have been so successful for all the other airlines that have tried them, but for some reason wouldn't work at, at Southwest. I, I mean, let's just take one of them, for example, you mentioned not assigning seats. Okay, you know, Ryanair. Uh, for most of its history, didn't assign seats either for the same reason Southwest didn't assign them. I mean, Ryanair largely, of course, modeled itself on Southwest. And then a few years back, they decided to experiment with uh, seat assignments and they began you know, offering the few, first few rows of seats uh, for assignment for a fee. And when they did that, you sort of saw this this light bulb go off and they sort of you sort of saw them having this holy cow moment like, oh, my goodness, this is. This can be really profitable. And and now they offer all their seats for assignment. So uh, that being one example, Jason, of where, you know, why would that work so incredibly well for Ryanair, but not make any sense for Southwest? And, and you can go down the line with those other things that you mentioned. Uh, you know, again, as you mentioned, we're talking about it. Uh, not only one of the historically most profitable airlines, but an airline that once again 
is now one of the most profitable in the world. So you give them some benefit of the doubt. And, and, and uh, you know, for what it's worth, uh, these things are not likely to change anytime soon because obviously, uh, you, you know, uh, they're far from in any sort of crisis that's going to force them to make changes that they don't want to make. So we're probably as far away as ever from seeing those changes. Uh, but could they be wise? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that, that their current success, as impressive as it is, uh, necessarily proves that those things uh, wouldn't work. Uh, you know, the, the reality could be that they would further supercharge Southwest profits if, if it would indeed consider those initiatives. In the cover story, we said that their network is strong because of its diversification. For comparison, Delta has 52% of its seats touching Atlanta. Southwest, on the other hand, has 14% of its seats touching Chicago Midway, its biggest hub. Obviously, having Atlanta is a strength for Delta. But for Southwest, not having an Atlanta or anything close to it seems to be a strength. Is that a true statement? Well, yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, overexposure to one market can be a bad thing. Now, you know, Delta for most of its history has been perfectly happy to have the amount of exposure it has to Atlanta because you know, it's just an extraordinarily successful hub. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you take Delta, you know, at times when AirTran was a big problem for Delta, uh, you know, if AirTran is a problem at Atlanta, it's a problem for all of Delta because Atlanta is half of Delta. Southwest, of course, subsequently bought AirTran and uh, actually struggled somewhat there. That's one of the few things that hasn't gone well for Southwest over uh, just the past few years. But um, yeah, you know, it, beyond that, beyond just uh, you know a matter of, of not having too much risk in one place, Southwest's domestically balanced network uh, really gives it a big, uh, you know, what you might call a moat, just something that uh, you know makes it very hard to penetrate its network. And that's because we're talking about an airline that has, you know, 600 something airplanes uh, flying all over the country. And and really, you know, Jason, you used that word hub to describe Chicago Midway. And, and I think that's an important point because a lot of people don't think of Southwest as a hub and spoke carrier. You know, it's a low cost carrier. I think people know they sell connections. But, you know, we're talking about an airline that, yeah, you know, a third of its passengers or so connect. Um, and by having what you might really call, oh, a couple dozen uh, sizable hubs around the country where people connect in places like, of course, uh, Chicago Midway, of course, Baltimore, Washington, another uh, huge one. But, you know, Nashville and, and Las Vegas and just countless others around the country, what you end up with are a lot of nonstop markets uh, where Southwest is often – the only airline with nonstop service. And not only that, they'll have multiple frequencies a day. And there's just no way for anybody else to set up what they have. Uh, you know, it just takes decades to get there. You're not going to have, uh, you know, some other airline, you know, even one of sort of the ultra low cost carriers that have been a problem for, for the established carriers, including Southwest and many other realms. You know, they're not going to come in and start offering multiple daily frequencies, uh, you know, between uh, Nashville and Tulsa and Kansas City, just all these other places uh, where where Southwest is so strong. And so the diversification, not so much just for the sake of diversification, although certainly that's helpful that there's no, you know, one place where just some other competitor can come in and really ruin Southwest's overall business, but also because of how all of those, uh, you know, whether you want to call them hubs or, or not, because all of those very busy stations where you have lots of connections just create this very impenetrable network overall. 
Uh, yeah, uh, hard to call it anything but a very big strength uh, for Southwest. We look around the industry and we see airlines getting into trouble when they become quote unquote tweeners. Airlines that are neither fully committed to being low cost carriers nor fully committed to being a comprehensive network carrier. Those kind of airlines usually end up beating nobody. So if we knew nothing of Southwest's stellar profits recently, we might look at their situation with more skepticism. Because to put it simply, they don't do what Spirit does, and they don't do what United does. They sort of exist in the middle. Have they figured out something new here, a third way? Yeah, not, not really new at all, uh, first of all, because, of course, they invented the low-cost model, but also because uh, of kind of a, a very important asterisk to what you just said, which is very true in general. But he here's the thing. What you said is true when you're comparing uh, carriers and sort of holding network constant. Okay, so you know if I if I tell you we're going to be flying in a certain market and one carrier has very very low costs and one carrier ha has a very very comprehensive product and all of the other things that go along with being a legacy airline, the corporate contracts and the monster frequent flyer program and so forth, and and then there's somebody sort of caught in the middle, somebody like oh Virgin America, let's say or Air Berlin, or Virgin Australia, some of these airlines around the world that, that have had problems distinguishing themselves in terms of profitability, and that sort of are those, you know, what they call hybrid carriers. Um, yeah, those airlines do struggle. Um, but Southwest has something that's, uh, that's rather hard to penetrate, and it's what we just talked about a moment ago. It's the Southwest Network. Uh, another airline like that, Jason, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Alaska Airlines. People sometimes ask me that same question. Well, well yeah, you know, what's it about Alaska? I mean, they're you know kind of an upmarket carrier, rather nice service, but they're not as comprehensive as the giant global carriers. Uh, you know, they're not as low cost as as you know Spirit, Allegiant, Frontier. How do they do it? You know, with them too, uh, it's network. In their case, they uh, you know very dominant in a part of the the country uh, in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. Uh, you know, we're just nobody else can really establish what they have very quickly. Uh, and in Southwest case, it, it's it's also its network, coupled by the way, Jason, with the fact that it actually is still a very low cost carrier, particularly on very short stage lengths, just the way Southwest business is set up. Um, you know, they're not the lowest cost carrier overall when you adjust for stage lengths, but in those markets, you know, flights kind of three, 400 miles. Uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty tough to compete with. You know, most other airlines do have higher costs. So, uh, so they do have rather low cost and they just have that monster network and you put that all together, uh, along with rather healthy revenues, uh, you know, these days, and um, yeah, no surprise that they are as successful as they are. Despite some sluggish economies around the world, airlines are generally bullish. The cause of this isn't all that mysterious. Cheap oil is enabling more capacity, which is enabling lower prices, which is enabling more people to fly. Worldwide, ASKs were up 6% in August compared to last year. That's pretty remarkable given the economic issues in Europe, Brazil, and China. But lower oil prices are making the world a smaller place, aren't they? Yeah, along with that 6% uh, ASK capacity growth, you know, you had even more bullish traffic growth, 7% RPK growth. Uh, and and so, uh, so there you go. Uh, you know, airplanes are fuller. And to be clear, of course, fuller airplanes don't always equate to profitability. But 
not a bad place to start when you know when you're when you're packing more people onto uh, airplanes. And yeah, exactly. It, it, lower oil prices are enabling a lot of this. You know, you see route announcements uh, all the time now. Just just in the past few days, you know, Delta announcing it's going to fly from Minneapolis to Rome and from Detroit to Munich, for example. And and you see some of those, and you say eh, that seems kind of marginal. You know, Detroit, Munich, and then you have to remind yourself uh, that jet fuel is a dollar thirty-five a gallon in the U.S. right now, and all sorts of things become possible when it is. Uh, so no question, um, you know, the world has, of course, in many other respects, become a smaller place because of, you know, because of the Internet and the rest of it over the past decade or so. But expensive oil uh, had, had actually been sort of suppressing the growth of, of air service. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of growth, but we would have seen a lot more had oil been cheaper. Well, guess what? Now oil's rather cheap. And, uh, you know, that does unleash all kinds of other possibilities. Does this remind you of the late 90s? Oh, you mean kind of the, the, the last time uh, oil was rather cheap and, and you had at least some economies around the world uh, growing rather rapidly? Yeah. I, you know, and, and, and if anything, uh, the difference now is that the world is so much more interconnected. Uh, you know, so you do see routes now, uh, you know, United flying to Xi'an in China, you know, which uh, you might call not even a secondary, but really a tertiary uh, Chinese market. It, you know, I mean, that's just something that in the late 1990s, forget it, you know, that, that wouldn't have existed, um, no matter what the oil price is. And of course, back then, they were even cheaper, you know, crude oil down to, uh, you know, 11 bucks a barrel at, at one point. And so, yeah, in, in some respects it does. Um, you know, the last time oil was cheap was was 2009. You know, really the late the end of 2008, the beginning of 2009. But of course, the global economy was, was a complete mess at this point. Uh, certainly, a lot of trouble spots around the world, and and you 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 mentioned them. Uh, you know, Brazil, China, especially Russia, obviously. Um, but uh, you know, the the U.S., the U.K. Uh, you know, even many other parts of Europe, uh, you know, starting to show signs of recovery. Um, so you couple hopeful economic news in at least some parts of the world with those very cheap oil prices and yeah, presents all kinds of opportunity. Russia's Aeroflot got a reprieve of sorts. The government is not making Aeroflot absorb the heavily indebted Transaero. That was a surprise. It was. Um, and, and, you know, we're talking about Russia and, and, and you never know exactly what's going on the, behind the scenes. But, yeah, uh, the, the news is that Transaero uh, was, was sort of dithering. You know, some of its stakeholders weren't sure what they wanted to do, um, basically missed a deadline to get some paperwork together, which let Aeroflot off the hook. Uh, and well, put it this way, Aeroflot's shares, uh, soared on that news. <laughs> so, uh, you know, investors, uh, seem to sort of breathe a, a sigh of relief. Aeroflot ha has, has absorbed, um, a number of, of, of its smaller competitors over the past decade in, in Russia and, and done a pretty reasonable job of it. Um, you know, one of, one of the really, uh, interesting airline stories in the world and really one to watch going forward uh, Transaero would have been a lot to swallow. I mean, we're talking about an airline that's uh, that's rather clearly insolvent. I mean, it, it seems it's going to be shutting down here uh, pretty soon unless something else happens. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, although surely the government would have done what it needed to do to uh, sort of mitigate the 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 damage for Aeroflot, uh, you can imagine Aeroflot is 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 happy to not have to be digesting that and and sort of moving forward with what's already a rather tough 
environment to 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 navigate. Although one that they've uh, um, done, as I said, a pretty good job navigating. In Mexico, Valaris is reporting some explosive growth figures. The low-cost carrier is reporting traffic was up 32% in September year over year. They have the right business model at the right time, and it's a good time to be next to the red-hot U.S. market. What's the rest of the story? Yeah, you know, this is an airline that's done very well. Uh, you know, I should note that that uh, 32% traffic growth was on 34% capacity growth. So, so uh, you know, demand didn't quite keep up with supply growth, and and uh, their load factors did slip just a bit. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, they uh, took the plunge. Uh, you know, went with the ultra low cost carrier model. Uh, you know, really unbundled the product and did all the sorts of things that, oh, spirit. Wizz Air, and no surprise, because after all, it's the same investment firm, Indigo Partners, that uh, is largely behind that transformation at Volaris. Uh, and, and and you mentioned the U.S. market. That that's an important thing that distinguishes them from their low cost competitors in Mexico. You know, Mexico right now, Jason, you basically have four uh, notable airlines: uh, Aeromexico, of course, the the uh, the intercontinental giant, and and also a giant domestic airline, and then three low cost carriers: Volaris, Interjet, and Viva Aerobus. Um, now. Interjet is is uh, nearly an all domestic airline. Um, it, it's an upmarket airline, a product that's you know more like oh let's say JetBlue, uh, you know less seating density and and uh, you know more amenities and an airline that's inter- interested in partnerships and that sort of thing. Uh, Volaris and Viva are are both ultra low cost carriers, the very basic product. Viva still mostly a domestic airline and also, by the way, a much smaller one. Uh, Volaris, one with a huge transborder business. Uh, and it, it seems to be going very well for them. Uh, you know, the Mexican market uh, airlines, they're not as profitable as, let's say, U.S. airlines or, or well, even Canadian airlines. Uh, but Mexico is still much better off than much of Latin America, you know, particularly when you go down to South America, let's say. Uh, airlines they're really struggling Mexico uh, holding up considerably better uh yeah you know partly because uh, of the proximity to the US with a big opportunity coming up here you know the US and Mexico have, have negotiated a, a, a much more liberalized aviation bilateral it's it's not quite open skies but it's it's very close to that um and uh you know it's a big opportunity for the mexican carriers in particular because you know they have very low costs uh you know obviously lower labor costs than their u.s competitors and uh you know whereas it was the mexican carriers for a long time that actually fought against open skies now uh you know they generally are embracing it and uh, they see it as a, a big opportunity and volaris uh, you know more than any other really one that's shown uh, what an opportunity low-cost transporter flying can be. Thanks, Seth. We'll leave it right there. Till next week, thank you for joining us in the Airline Weekly Lounge. I like the Springsteen reference in the cover story this week. <laughs> we try. We try to. Uh, Rolling Stones, yeah, too. Yeah.